के पसिफिका रेडियो दिस इज राइजिंग अप इट सोनाली एंड आई एम योर होस्ट सोनाली कोल हटकर यू कैन वॉच दिस प्रोग्राम ऑन फ्री स्पीच टी वी एंड लिसन टू इट ऑन पसिफिका रेडियो स्टेशन एंड फिलियट्स नेशन वाइड इट इज नो कॉन्सिडेंस दैट ड्यूरिंग अ टाइम ऑफ चेंजिंग क्लाइमेट वेल्थ इन इक्वालिटी एंड अ ग्लोबल पैंडेमिक दैट लार्ज मैसेज ऑफ ह्यूमन्स वुड लीव देयर होम्स एस्केपिंग डेंजर एंड डेथ एंड लुकिंग फॉर बेटर लाइफ इंडीड इट इज ओनली नेचुरल टू माइग्रेट as non-human species do who do not have to contend with artificial borders xenophobic leaders or racist scapegoating throughout history animals plants and humans have migrated to avoid danger to their species and telling that story in a new book is acclaimed science journalist sonia shah her earlier book was titled pandemic tracking contagion from cholera to ebola and beyond she now joins me to discuss her newest book the next great migration the beauty and terror of life on the move welcome to the program sonia thanks for having me so the next great migration is something that are is that something that we are already in the middle of or something that you uh, are expecting to happen yes yeah, i think we it's already starting we have about 80% of wild species have shifted their ranges they're moving towards the poles and up into altitude higher altitudes to in sync with the changing climate um people are moving in new ways too we have more people who are living in countries outside of the countries they were born in than ever before we've more displaced people than at any time since world war 2 you are and listening to KBOO life. Portland on 90.7 FM K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM and on the web at kboo.fm KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with the requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBOO, board meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The KBOO Board of Directors meets the fourth Monday of the month starting at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today on our weekly roundtable, the Donald is continuing his attempts at a slow motion coup. He's trying to stay in office, it seems, by any means necessary. From challenging Biden's victory on flimsy and untrue charges to purges in his own administration to wild conspiracy theories, his lawyer Rudy Giuliani is spinning tales including even blaming Hugo Chavez, who has been dead since 2013. Hugo Chavez, of course, the late president of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela, at having a hand in his defeat. What does this mean for the world's understanding of democracy US style? For people across the United States who participated in an election that had the highest turnout in 120 years and as we go on the air, close to 80 million people across the United States voted for the Biden Harris ticket. And what is the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo up to with his visit to Israel? How is the Biden administration being set up given the complexities of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? What are the implications of Biden's selection of his cabinet and inner circle for US foreign policy under his administration? What are some of the new foreign policy hotspots now on the Biden administration radar? 
and anti-war campaigners and environmental activists are increasingly concerned as President-elect Joe Biden rolls out his advisors and members of his administration. And Black Lives Matter is circulating a petition asking people to support their request for a meeting with Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris already. The pressure from the left, people of color and young people who helped to get the Biden-Harris ticket elected is being felt. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. The U.S. recorded 2,000 COVID-19-related deaths on Thursday as the virus continues to surge out of control and hospitals around the country near capacity. Meanwhile, the nation's top public health agency pleaded with Americans on Thursday not to travel for Thanksgiving and not to spend the holiday with people from outside their household. The Centers for Disease Control's COVID-19 incident manager, Dr. Henry Walke, said stay home. Amidst this critical phase of the COVID-19 pandemic, CDC is recommending against travel during the Thanksgiving period. The Thanksgiving warning from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention came as the White House Coronavirus Task Force held a briefing for the first time in months and Vice President Mike Pence concluded it without responding to questions by reporters or urging Americans not to travel. Other members of the task force, whose media briefings were a daily fixture during the early days of the outbreak, talked about the progress being made in the development of a vaccine. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar said pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and BioNTech will seek emergency government approval for the coronavirus vaccine today. California is imposing a nighttime curfew as coronavirus cases soar, but it will lean heavily on voluntary compliance, and sheriffs of some counties say they won't enforce it. California Health and Human Services Secretary Mark Golley said the state really didn't have much choice other than to make this move. Why are we doing this and what are we hoping to gain? It's really to avoid further restrictions we know and we've seen in the past that COVID goes from zero to 60 miles per hour very quickly. The stay-at-home order for 41 counties bars non-essential travel and closes non-essential businesses from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. starting Saturday. The order will last until December 21st and comes as a surge in COVID-19 cases threatens to overwhelm the health care system. The curfew covers 94% of the state's nearly 40 million residents. But sheriffs and some lawmakers in at least four counties say they won't enforce the curfew. President-elect Joe Biden on Thursday lambasted President Trump for refusing to concede the election and formally commit to a peaceful transfer of power, while also blasting the General Services Administration's delay of the presidential transition. In a press conference in Wilmington, Delaware, that came after he met virtually with several governors, Biden criticized Trump for not conceding the election and dragging the process out. Incredibly damaging messages being sent to the rest of the world about how democracy functions. And I think it is, uh, um, well, I don't know his motive, but I, I just think it's totally irresponsible. Biden reiterated his frustration with the Trump administration for holding up the transition process. He said he would not yet rule out legal action in the future to obtain a completed ascertainment process, but said that was not his plan at the moment. Republican Maryland Governor Larry Hogan was one of the governors Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris met with. He told MSNBC that critical COVID planning is being held up with the failure to cooperate with the incoming Biden administration. We've got to get the transition moving so that they can get up up to speed from the outgoing administration. We also had a, I've been stressing that the two groups need to start talking right away so that we can stay on top of this. We're in the middle of this war against the virus and, uh, you know, we've got to have everybody on the field. Prior to his press conference, Biden and Vice President-elect Harris met virtually with several of the nation's governors, both Democrats and Republicans to discuss how their administration could best help states fight the COVID-19 pandemic once Biden takes office. 
President Trump today summoned state legislators to the White House as part of a long-shot bid to overturn Joe Biden's victory. The move comes a day after the Trump administration dropped a lawsuit in Michigan seeking to overturn the results based on unfounded claims of electoral fraud. Election law experts see it as the last dying gasps of the Trump administration and say Biden is certain to walk into the Oval Office come January. But there is great concern that Trump's effort is doing real damage to public faith in the integrity of American elections. Trump's own election security agency has declared the 2020 presidential election to have been the most secure in history. Days after that statement was issued, Trump fired the agency's leader. The increasingly desperate and erratic moves have no reasonable chance of changing the outcome of the 2020 election, in which Biden has now received more votes than any other presidential candidate in history and has clinched the 270 electoral college votes needed to win. I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Not only is he pushing state legislators to visit him at the Oval Office in an attempt to overturn the Democrats' uh, victory, he's also personally calling local election officials who are trying to rescind their certification votes in Michigan, this according to the Associated Press. Donald Trump invited Republican state lawmakers from Michigan to the White House on Friday, November 20th. He also called two GOP canvas board members from Wayne County after they went back and forth on voting to certify the election results from the state's largest county. And on Wednesday, November 18th, the board members filed affidavits uh, seeking to rescind their votes to certify the election result, this according to CNN. Uh, Let us go to a clip clip now from CBS on Trump pressuring key Michigan officials in the election fight. Today, President Trump was handed two more legal defeats, this time in Pennsylvania and Arizona, in his last-ditch effort to challenge the election in court. Well, now the president is shifting tactics as he attempts to cast doubt on the results. CBS's Paula Reed reports tonight from the White House. With courtroom losses piling up, President Trump is trying a new approach in his fight to overturn the election, personal political pressure. He's called Republican legislators from Michigan to the White House tomorrow to persuade them to intervene after Wayne County Republicans failed to block Joe Biden's win earlier this week. Joe Biden won the state of Michigan by over 150,000 votes. Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, said the president needs to realize the election is over. Stop spending energy to mislead about what happened in this election. The Trump campaign had tried to block the Michigan election results in court, but withdrew that suit today, leaving their record on legal challenges nationwide almost entirely without success. It's really easy to make unsupported, wild conspiracy claims in parking lots, at press conferences, um, on Twitter and social media. It's really hard to support those claims in court when those claims fall under scrutiny. And in every single case, those claims have failed. Numerous legal setbacks aren't stopping the president's campaign team from pursuing and promoting false claims of fraud. I know crimes. I can smell them enough to overturn any election. It's disgraceful what happened. Rudy Giuliani presented no evidence to back up his allegations. And there are other aspects of this fraud that at this point I really can't reveal. The country's former top election security official, Chris Krebs, fired by President Trump on Tuesday, called today's press conference the most dangerous hour and 45 minutes of television in American history and possibly the craziest. Those two Republican legislators coming from Michigan to visit the White House tomorrow and talk with President Trump, well, they've both previously said they will not try to overturn Biden's victory in their state. Nora. Paula Reed, thank you. All righty, and earlier this week, uh, Trump-supporting voters dropped four lawsuits 
pushing fraud claims. And last week, nine cases from Trump and the GOP were either denied or pulled. Some say there's no chance Trump will be able to pull off this slow motion coup. However, it's very dangerous. Others are worried that his right-wing base will sow more political discontent. Already, the country is very politically divided. This, according to a study conducted by Pew Research one month before the election, roughly eight in 10 registered voters in both camps said their differences with the other side were about core values. And roughly nine in 10, again, in both camps, worried that a victory by the other side would lead to lasting harm to the United States. The implications of an increasingly divided country are forcing Democrats and Republicans to self-reflect, update their strategies, and causing some infighting in both uh, parties on the Democratic side between uh, progressives and centrists within that within the party. Let us welcome our panelists for today. Uh, Laura Carlson, director of the America's Program, works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization based in Mexico City. She's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura Carlson is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura Carlson Welcome. Thank you, Margaret. Pleasure to be here. Okay. Also, like to welcome Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District Five. She's a former member of the California State Assembly, and Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston, has written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, published in June 2020. And he has yet another book um, that is being released. Dr. Gerald Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so uh, Laura Carlson, let's start with you. Uh, your thoughts on this attempted slow motion coup. I mean, imagine if any country south of the border uh, pulls some of what Donald Trump is pulling, what the response from the United States would be. And there you have Rudy Giuliani uh, spin, spin, spinning tales, even bringing in the name of Hugo Chavez, who to have had some hand in um, Biden's win. Uh, Laura Carlson, your thoughts on, on all this and, and how this looks also from outside the United States, Laura. Well, you can imagine what it would be, how it would be read if this were happening in another country. And in many ways, it is being read th this way abroad. But there's also a lot of confusion. I mean, it's a clear effort to subvert a democratic system. The phrase that the CBS clip used, I think, is, is shocking. They said that the new strategy, having lost in the courts, essentially, with the number of cases that were thrown out or withdrawn, as you mentioned, uh, and having very little expectation of, of um, you know, changing any of the vote counts in the states, is to exert personal political pressure. We're talking about a lame duck president trying to exert personal political pressure based on the power that he has from the White House to subvert a popular vote of, of millions and millions of votes, or of probably now it's at more than six million vote difference. You know, that is absolutely unheard of in any democracy in any part of the world. And the fact that he invited these state Republican leaders to the White House, despite, as Governor Whitmer mentioned, a 150,000-vote difference to try to pressure them and is talking about who he can invite from other battleground states to pressure them, you know, it's a last gasp attempt, but it's also very worrisome because the strategy is to sow maximum confusion and uncertainty so that a strange clause in some state governments could release electors. 
I don't think that he will be uh, successful in any of these strategies. I mean, you see Giuliani's press conference, and he's clearly grasping at straws, citing the influence of South American ghosts, and um, and and that the way at Wayne County, how they're going to change it when Wayne County has already been certified. The br- the brunt of this campaign is clearly in Michigan, um, but as I say, it's just very unlikely. But at the same time, you have Pompeo going around talking about a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. You have Barr authorizing federal prosecutors to investigate basically nothing. You have people resigning or being purged from the federal government. So that there's, there, there is still some degree of uncertainty about what will happen, not about which way the elections went or who will become president, but what will happen within this country. And it's true, we've looked at a number of elections, and I've been an election observer in elections, especially here in Latin America. And one of the things we know is that the electoral process has to generate certainty. It has to go smoothly, which this one obviously did, but in order for a democracy to function properly, it also has to generate certainty among the populace that representative democracy is functioning. So sowing the seeds and then, you know, growing the plant, the evil plant of uncertainty and doubt, and not just that, but accusations against this election is extremely dangerous for any democracy. And it's dangerous in a physical sense as well, because the other wild car we have out there, we saw in the streets on Saturday, is the movement of uh, white nationalists and other pro-Trump organizations to question the elections and the possibility that they could get more aggressive as time goes on and could continue to be more aggressive as the Biden administration comes into power. So there's still a, a lot of damage being done, despite the fact that it looks like the election is closed. The best thing that Biden can do is to, he won't ever change the minds of those Trump supporters, and it's a, it's a lost cause. Um, but So the best thing that Biden can do is to be able to change those minds or to consolidate his win with results rather than arguments, and that means getting on with the people's agenda. Yes, and, and Jackie Goldberg, here you have the, the pandemic crisis facing the nation. Um, it's spiking all across the United States. In California, uh, new measures have just been put in place, including a, a stay at home, a stay in place order uh, from the government governor. Hospitalizations are on the rise. Deaths are on the rise. Over 250,000 uh, now, uh, and also over 11 million infected. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, none of this seems to be on the radar of the Trump administration. What is on his administration is just staying in power by any means necessary. But Jackie, the other thing I think we do have to look at is there's a debate on how divided the country is. But clearly, given the data from the Pew research that I mentioned taken before the election, and keeping in mind that Donald Trump did get around 72 million votes, although Joe Biden is heading to 80 uh, million, the country is divided, and Trump did grow support in uh, rural areas. And some people are questioning the wisdom of bashing uh, Trump voters. And in places like Iowa, you have some counties that voted, uh, majority white counties, that had voted for Obama and then flipped to Trump in 2016 and then stayed with Trump uh, in, in 2020 and considered themselves part of a movement of kind. Uh, Jackie Goldberg. Well, you know, I, I think the division in this country has been there forever. I mean, it's, you know, the Civil War was clearly the beginning of a movement of people to say that it is ridiculous to try to have uh, equal rights for everybody. Uh, not everybody is equal, and that is an underlying thread throughout our history, starting with making uh, African Americans brought against their will to this country as three-fifths of human beings in the Constitution of the United States. So it's not like that we should be surprised that these divisions exist. The problem that we're facing 
is is that the the uh, president of the United States has for almost four years encouraged people to find their worst instincts of racism and to express them publicly. What that does is it, it, it makes the challenge of dealing with division much more much more complicated, but in some ways, believe it or not, it's an advantage. Why is it an advantage? Because people being quiet and yet doing all of the systemic things they do to oppose equal rights for everybody in this country, when they do it quietly, it's very difficult to challenge. We now have an opportunity, if the Biden administration takes it, to really talk to people about what it is we mean by systemic racism and why it is in the interest of all white people for that to end in America. Because it is not what is protecting your privilege. Your privilege is being protected because wealthy people make money off of it. And as long as wealthy people make money off of it, they're going to try to continue to encourage it. And that's the issue that we're facing. I don't think that the, they're going to be successful, but I do think they are doing great harm with this, uh, as you called it, uh, uh, slow-moving coup. And that is a coup. We need to use the word. This is a coup attempt. This is absolutely a coup attempt. This says that we don't care what the voters say. We don't care what the vote was. We don't care that we can't show any problems, really, with, with the election. It was the safest probably in, in history. Uh, we want to stay in power. And that is the definition of a coup d'etat by an existing, elect, uh, an existing official, whether they were elected or not. So I do think this is a dangerous time. I don't believe that it will be possible for them to overturn this election, even if they try because basically most states have in their laws that what has to happen with their electors already. Now, the one most important lesson from this election, it is time to seriously change the electoral college. That has got to change. Otherwise, we are going to be in this position every year where a handful, tiny handful of people in states like Montana and other places get the equivalent of about 500 times their value of their votes for me here in California. It's at least five, they get 500 times more power than I do. That's, that's not one person, one vote. And we've got to do something about that. Right, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, you know, along the same lines, people are really trying to figure out what the heck happened. And I just want to share a story uh, told by um, a, a friend of mine who uh, was out canvassing for Obama in a white rural area doing some door knocking and she knocked on the door. A woman, a white woman answered the door and asked, are, are you uh, going, who are you going to vote for uh, in this election? And she said, well, let me go ask my husband. She goes in and she asks her husband and she comes back and she says uh, to the canvasser, my husband said to tell you we're voting for the N word. Right. Um, and, you know, I imagine that story could have happened in a number of places um, that went for Obama, but then flipped uh, for Trump in um, flipped for Trump in 2016 and continued to support him in 2020. Uh, your thoughts on, on all of this, because the, the, the divide is definitely there and, and it's historic and Jackie is definitely right, uh, but there, there, is, there, are, there is a slice of white people who did vote for Obama and who then flipped for Trump and people are trying to figure out why, what happened. Uh, Dr. Gerald Horn. Well, I think the Trump strategy now is to delay a certification of the voting totals. You see that in Michigan. You see that in the 30 lawsuits that his team has filed. The approach is to knock down Mr. Biden's electoral college total below 270 somehow, and then to rely on the 12th Amendment to the United States Constitution. And we may not know who was the actual victor until January 6, 2021, when Michael Pence presides over a joint session of Congress. And if there is some contestation about Mr. Biden's vote total, the decision then shifts to the House, where the GOP controls 26 to 27 of the 50 delegations, which means that Mr. Trump would be inaugurated on January 21st. Now, 
I doubt if that will prevail, but I'm the person who doubted that uh, Bush versus Gore in 2000-2001 would go the way that it did. Certainly what's happening right now is a stress test for the United States, which it is failing. It's also a verdict on analysts and historians who have talked at length, at nausea, about the roots of so-called U.S. democracy when we all know that it was an apartheid project from its inception. And it's also a verdict, I'm afraid to say, on many of the legal analysts who keep dismissing these Trump approaches, saying that they're foolish. But I think what's happening is that the U.S. right, they see themselves the same way that Marvin Gaye's father saw himself. That is to say, he felt he could kill his son because he helped bring his son into life. And the U.S. right says that we're the ones, speaking of the U.S. right, who liquidated the Native Americans, who enslaved the Africans, and we're the ones who deserve to rule, and any other rulers are ipso facto illegitimate. So in some ways, what's happening is that chickens are coming home to root. That is to say, we know that in recent decades, the United States has waged covert and overt wars abroad against various regimes, overthrowing those, particularly those they consider to be socialist. Now, they, the Republicans and the right have concluded that Mr. Biden is a socialist, or at least a front for socialists. And so I think that even if this Trump strategy does not prevail by January 2021, it's the beginning of a long process of low-intensity conflict and guerrilla warfare meant to make illegitimate and ineffective the Trump, uh, excuse me, the Biden presidency. And in some ways, the U.S. voters will be like the Nicaraguan voters in 1989-1990 who were voting for the Sandinistas, but by 1990 decided to vote for the right because they felt that the Sandinistas could not be effective and they could get a breather if they voted for the right. And that may be the lens through which we need to talk about those who supposedly voted for Obama in one year and voted for Trump the next term, uh, possibly. And certainly I think it's possible as well that in addition to low-intensity conflict, we may be facing high-intensity conflict. Look at the latest revelations from Michigan, which not only involved a kidnapping plot against the governor and her presumed execution, but now we learn that they, that the plotters planned a made-for-television extravaganza where they would execute legislators in the Capitol and Lansing and then set the whole building afire and aflame. Uh, with these protests that have been mentioned that took place this past Saturday where these alt-right and neo-Nazi forces mobilized in the thousands and tens of thousands, I think that we're going to have to learn that we may be facing chickens coming home to roost. That is to say, when you train these mostly young Euro-American men to go abroad, to settle political disputes through the barrel of a gun, they may decide that that's the best way to settle political disputes at home. Right. Wow. <clears throat> well, thank you for that. What we'll do now is we'll actually take our station break now. And uh, when we return, we're going to continue our weekly roundtable with Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. Don't go away. There's a lot coming up in terms of uh, world affairs and uh, how the movements, progressive movements, are beginning to push back against the Biden team. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You seeks of only vanity and no love for humanity shall fade away, fade away. You checks for only wealth and not for his physical health shall fade away, fade away. Though some believe in diamonds and pearl and feel like they're on top of the world, they shall fade away. Hear what I say? The rich is getting richer every day. And the little that the poor man got, it shall be taken away. Do you hear what I say? 
Alrighty, and that song, Fade Away by Junior Biles. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And also check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org, an extensive community calendar, uh, videos, lots of other um stories that we're not necessarily able to cover on the air. And we're also worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. And uh, today in the United States, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Miami, Florida. And internationally, I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Poland. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. And now we're going to go to around looking at the global impl implications of the Biden-Harris uh, um, ticket election here. And let us start by focusing with what Mike Pompeo is up to. Uh, people are saying, well, he wants to run for office in 2024. Uh, the Donald is also saying he wants to run in 2024, so we'll have to see how that goes. But as more Trump-aligned Arab countries normalize relations with Israel, um, it is moving ahead with a policy of silent transfer. This has been described as an intricate system that targets Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem with residency, revocation, displacement through house demolitions, barriers in obtaining building permits, and high taxes. Uh, 24 structures were destroyed last month, half of them by their owners following the uh, issuance of demolition orders by the Jerusalem municipality. Still, the Palestinian Authority says it will resume coordination with Israel that is suspended in May in response to an Israeli plan to annex part of the occupied um, West Bank. So uh, Mike Pompeo has been all over the place, it seems. Um, he's gone to the controversial, he's going to the controversial Golan Heights. He was in uh, the um, areas that were annexed and uh, making some very um, promises uh, to the Israeli uh, government of the United States continuing in this kind of direction. And some people are saying that it's really setting up um, the Biden administration. Let us go to a short clip from NPR on this. It's not just where he's going, right? It's what he's saying, too. He's announced some new, new policies. That's right. He made two new declarations. He said that a pro-Palestinian movement to boycott Israel is anti-Semitic. Now, most um, or many U.S. states have passed laws against uh, these kinds of Israel boycotts, and uh, some boycott supporters say that uh, Israel should not exist as a Jewish state. Boycotters say this anti-Semitic label is wrong and an attempt to delegitimize a nonviolent protest in support of Palestinians. Uh, the second declaration that Pompeo made is that when the U.S. imports products like wines, for instance, from Jewish settlements in the West Bank, they must be labeled as made in Israel. Uh, now, the West Bank is not Israel. Israel has not officially annexed those lands. But here again, Pompeo is siding with uh, Israel's claims to the land. So how, how is all this going to box in the incoming Biden administration? Well, Pompeo is clearly trying to cement you know, his view and the administration's view of settlements before leaving office. And this does put, put uh, Biden in a bind. One Israeli settler leader compared it to chess and uh, Pompeo declaring check. So now it's Biden's move. He has opposed settlement expansion. And if he reverses these policies, it could lead to tensions with Israelis. Of course, uh, Pompeo is not the only one trying to influence the Biden administration now. I should mention that Palestinians themselves are taking steps to create warm relations. And the Palestinians just reestablished security and economic ties with Israel. That could uh, be um, something that Biden would, would recognize and, uh, and welcome. Right. So, um, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you. I mean, this is just one example, but we wanted to just dig in a little bit about the 
um, the foreign policy implications even of Biden's selection of some of his cabinet and inner circle for U.S. foreign policy under his his administration and what uh, Trump and Pompeo in particular seem to be up to um, with this uh, his recent round of visits. Jackie Goldberg. Well, you know, I'm not so worried about them as I am worried about Biden, because Biden, you know, has had a very long relationship uh, with Israel, uh, starting back with Golda Meir. Uh, and that relationship includes him making a very famous speech uh, when he in the Senate said that, uh, it, I think it was like 1985, 86, 87, he made a speech that, that's quoted all the time, by Israelis that the that the three billion dollars that we send to Israel is the best investment we make. Uh, if there weren't in Israel, we'd have to invent one. I mean, it was a very strong speech. He considers himself a Zionist. He has attended pro-Israel lobby group meetings, including APAC. Uh, although he's also gone to J Street, which is at least an improvement. So I don't think we can look at a Biden's election as a major change, but it will be some change. And here's the changes that it will be. Uh, Biden did support a two-state solution. Biden did support uh, the idea that uh, the uh, folks uh, should, uh, uh, that the Palestinian uh, PLO and uh, the Palestinian Authority should receive the funding that Israel has cut off. Um, he also uh, opposed a lot of the settlements, but while he, while he opposes the settlements, he refuses to say that he will leverage USAID in order to get Israel to abide by international law. That is a very important problem for Palestinians. As long as he says that he will not use aid as any effort uh, to move Israeli policy, whether it's Netanyahu, who is also in trouble, or anyone else, uh, that means that uh, not big changes in U.S. policy towards Israel and the Palestinians is going to happen. He is a strong opponent of BDS, which is the Boycott Divested Sanctions. He calls them uh, wrong. Uh, he didn't call them anti-Semitic, but he called them wrong. And uh, this whole notion of trying to shut up people who support a two-state solution, who support Palestinians' rights in the Middle East uh, as anti-Semitism is not something that you're going to see uh, Biden take on. He's going to agree with that in public and in private. So I'm, I'm less optimistic. I'm optimistic that some things will change, but I'm not optimistic that we can look to Biden to be, quote, a savior uh, for any of the Palestinian rights in the Middle East. Right. And uh, Laura Carlson uh, here, you know, you have the Biden administration, it is being said that will inherit um, the growing dispute uh, created under Trump with Mexico involving high-ranking officials. The former Mexican defense secretary arrested in the United States last month on charges of being a drug cartel boss is going to be returned to Mexico. Charges dropped with a promise by Mexican authorities to investigate him. This according to uh, CNN. Uh, this a general is accused of taking bribes in exchange for permitting a cartel to operate in Mexico. He was arrested in October and charged in Brooklyn with money laundering and narcotics conspiracy. And the arrests caused a lot of upset in the uh, Mexican government, I imagine, in Mexico, who complained that U.S. authorities hadn't provided enough notification. So this is, in addition to what we just discussed with uh, Jackie Goldberg, uh, yet another uh, growing development here. And a lot of people are also scratching their heads to say why the president of uh, Mexico has not, maybe he has, acknowledged the uh, by Biden, uh, Harris win. So your thoughts on the uh, Biden-Harris team as it relates to uh, world affairs, to foreign affairs, because a lot of people are saying, well, there's not going to be much difference, really, um, be with U.S. foreign policy as it stands now and under a Biden-Harris um, administration. Do you think that is the case? And what are the areas that you're going to be keeping an eye on? 
Well, it will depend probably on where we're talking about. In terms of uh, the relationship with Israel, I agree with what Jackie says. And basically, the Biden administration has one solid path, and that is to spearhead a multilateral effort to, uh, to enforce international law. And the big question comes down to, which is what came up in her presentation, whether or not he actually wants to. Uh, so we're gonna, we'll see that as time goes forward. And I say multi, multilateral because in this way it doesn't come out as just Joe Biden against the considerable international and national weight of, um, of the Israeli state and uh, supporters. In terms of the issue with Mexico, it's been fascinating. Of course, it's been in the headlines every day here because you have uh, the former Secretary of Defense during the entire past administration arrested and charged with drug trafficking in a country where the war on drugs has been primarily waged by the military. So that calls into question everything, you know, the institutionality of the military, and it's also a tremendous source of power for the U.S. government over Mexico. Now, the issue has been so-called resolved by sending Cienfuegos back without charges. There are no charges in Mexico. They dropped the charges in the United States, despite saying that they had ample evidence to prove that he collaborated with one of the bloodiest cartels in the country. Sending him back, and now everyone's content. Of course, the big question here, and this has to do with what Biden will inherit, is what was the transaction? We know that Donald Trump makes deals. What did Mexico have to give Donald Trump to get their general back and to release the control over all that information, over all that per, you know, potentially damaging um, information that could have come out in a trial in New York, you know, and to get back that kind of control. There's a lot of talk that the non-recognition of Biden's electoral victory win is one of the things that was negotiated. Just remember, this uh, this arrest was made in October of uh, on the 15th of October, and there could be other things that we'll see in the future as well. But in general, it raises the issue of the deals that are going on behind the scenes with foreign countries that could undermine a principled foreign policy on the part of Biden. And then finally, in terms of what to expect there, we've been taking a close look from the region of the Americas at the list. We've got Susan Rice at the top of the list for Secretary of State. There's others, of course, in the running. Um, not a great record, very centrist, interventionist. Libya is, is, her, is one of the marks on her record. Uh, and then even more concerning in some ways is Michelle Flournoy, a woman, which goes to show again that parity, you know, equity and just presence of women is no guarantee of a feminist perspective or a, or more or different policies. And so she's been being put up for Secretary of Defense, and she has openly uh, defended unilateral strikes, use of the military to protect U.S. interests around the world. So there's some real red flags on the list of who's being considered in foreign policy. And at the same time, we have some real crisis coming up. And just to mention very rapidly, because I think it just has to be brought more into the public awareness, what's going on in Central America is an absolute tragedy. We now have Hurricane Eta. We have Hurricane Iota. They all came through. And there's another tropical storm that's brewing with more floods. The countries are underwater. This is on top of the COVID crisis. It's on top of a political crisis in most of those countries. And so Biden will have to, first of all, get those asylum reforms done, you know, roll back the asylum limitation, and craft a humanitarian response. And so far, we haven't seen in his policy platform that kind of thing. We've, re we've seen a return to an Obama policy that really was focused on private sector investment and a whole slate of, of policy options that have never worked. We're going to be facing a crisis. He's going to have to work it out in terms of immigration and asylum and also in terms of getting these nations back on their feet so families can survive. 
Right, thank you, uh, Laura Carlson. And Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, as Laura mentioned, there's a lot of worry on the part of anti-war activists about the hawkish types that um, uh, Biden either has already announced as uh, part of his team, per se, and also who he's considering. I mean, you have uh, Susan Rice, um, people are very worried about her being considered for Secretary of State. Uh, she backed the invasion of Iraq and echoed the long debunked claim that there were weapons of mass destruction. You have Tony uh, Blinken, who is being considered for National Security Advisor, who supported the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan under former President Barack Obama. And of course, uh, Laura mentioned uh, Michelle uh, Flournoy, who being considered for Secretary of defense and who call for preemptive strikes against Iraq. Uh, so Dr. Horn, when you look at the rising hotspots, let's say even on the continent there, um, what is happening in Ethiopia now that the Biden team seems to be getting very concerned about the conflict uh, they're growing into some type of civil war. The movement in Nigeria against uh, police corruption and abuse and the growing movements on the ground across the continent, including organizations like Africans Rising. Uh, so your thought on, on U.S. foreign policy uh, for a Biden, uh, you know, Harris team? Dr. Horn. There's a basic contradiction within the ranks of the Biden team. On the one hand, you have what he considers to be his base, who are black American voters. But ever since the Compromise of 1954, whereby the United States made halting and agonizing steps away from the apartheid regime, the trade-off was for black Americans to distance themselves from foreign policy critics like Paul Robeson, W.E.B. Du Bois, and have yet to surmount that hurdle. And so that means that the base is generally missing in action when it comes to foreign policy, and that gives even more leverage, not only to those figures that you've mentioned, but also to the never-Trump forces like Governor John Kasich of Ohio, the Lincoln Project Republicans who became turncoats against Mr. Trump and are generally foreign policy hawks. And so what this also means is that it will be difficult to cut Pentagon spending, even setting aside the fact that the Republicans may control the Senate in 2021, but that also means less domestic attention to pressing issues like education, uh, health care, etc. And then with regard to how this manifests itself in Africa, well, you mentioned Ethiopia, and you would think that an easy step forward for Mr. Biden would be to return to the World Health Organization from which Mr. Trump has sought to withdraw. But the problem there is, is that the World Health Organization is led by an Ethiopian, Dr. Tedros, as he is popularly known, and the Wall Street Journal has already put down a marker saying that if the United States returns to the World Health Organization, the quid pro quo should be to ditch Dr. Tedros. Weighing in has been the BBC, which has suggested that Dr. Tedros, who is also of uh, Tigrayan descent, that is to say this region in Ethiopia that is now under siege by the central government, and BBC suggested, albeit without presenting clear and convincing evidence, that he's been implicated uh, in helping to fund these Tigrayan rebels, after all, he was a former foreign minister under a Tigrayan-led government. Uh, he was also part of the Central Committee of the Tigrayan political party that was ruling in Addis Ababa for years until the recent rise of Abiy Ahmed, the current prime minister, who was, of course, a Romo descent. However, even with that, I think that it's possible to improve on the Trump record in that part of Africa. Because recall that just a few weeks ago, Mr. Trump suggested that his ally in Egypt bomb Ethiopia because of the conflict that Egypt and Ethiopia have over Ethiopia building a dam at the source of the Nile River, and Egypt considers that to be a threat to its lifeblood, speaking of that artery. And it's suspected that Egypt may be playing a role at the instigation of the United States in stirring up restiveness in Ethiopia, and I would hope and imagine that the Biden regime would try to move away 
from those sorts of policies, although given the fact that there are so many veterans of the disastrous and catastrophic war in Libya in 2011 resting in the confines of the Biden regime, it's hard to be overly optimistic. Right. Thank you, Dr. Horn. And uh, just wrapping our show up now on Thursday, November 19th, progressive climate activists occupied the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington, D.C., in protest of Joe Biden's early hires of key staff with connections to the oil and gas industry. And uh, let's go to a clip now. Let's hear from the squad. Let's see what they have to say about all this. We have worked with the Biden administration to secure commitment on a $2 trillion climate plan. $2 trillion. But we're not gonna stop there. We're not gonna stop with a piece of paper. That's not what's gonna happen. We're not gonna forget about that agreement for the sake of an election, are we? No, what we're gonna do is that we're gonna organize and demand that this administration, which I believe is decent and kind and honorable, keep their promise. We have seen the pundits and some of the leaders within the Democratic Party or even some of our colleagues who are um, freshmen talk about us getting back to basics. Saying, you know, the squad, Alex, Ilhan, Rashida, all of you have to stop talking about everything you talk about because we need to get back to basics. So I was confused because I thought, what is more basic than fighting for clean water? What is more basic than fighting for a breathable planet? What is more basic than trying to make sure we get health care for people? What is more basic than fighting for the people you represent, knowing that you represent districts where there are pockets where the children in that community have the third highest asthma rate. What is more basic than fighting to make sure that here in the United States, black women should not die of maternal mortality rate four times higher than their white female counterparts? We're already one. You know why? Because they can't get rid of us. Yeah. We're everywhere. It's true. I swear to God, every time I turn around, some of my colleagues come up to me and said, can you talk to those sun people? I said, you mean sunrise? I was like, that movement's not going anywhere. You went through a generation of a movement, folks, maybe anti-war, civil rights, labor rights movement. You remember Senator Parkey? This is a movement of people. We're not going anywhere. But let me tell you what's incredibly important here is that, you know, as you all see up here, it's gonna be our lived experiences that really have us be able to get credibility within the uh, halls of Congress. And in my district, where I grew up in Southwest Detroit, I honestly thought that smell was normal. I honestly thought that my friends having asthma was normal because they normalized it. But we're here to tell them that's not normal. That is not normal to watch people have to put a respiratory machine on their six-year-old child because she can't breathe because the corporate, but the pollution is so bad. I have family members that call me all the time and tell me, what are we doing here? We're giving them the permission to kill us. Permission to kill us. We only have uh, just about three minutes or so. Uh, panelists uh, consider that. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually gonna start with you. Uh, very quickly because progressive movements are already beginning to push uh, the Biden-Harris um, administration, the LGBTQ community. They've got a list of demands. And then what's going to happen with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, both of whom are interested in key positions in the Biden administration? Uh, Jackie Goldberg, just a quick minute from you on all this. Um, I don't think either of them will get big uh, appointments, unfortunately, but I do remind everybody that when you elect somebody who is uh, more uh, amenable to, more, more able to be influenced by protest, you do a better job than electing someone who is not amenable to change by protest. So we have someone in office who is a centrist, who is not a progressive, in my humble opinion, but who can be moved 
and will be moved from within the party and from outside from people who are going to make demands and insist on those demands. Right, and Dr. Horn. Well, it, it seems to me that there have already been red flags raised about the promotion of Cedric Richmond, a former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, a major White House staff position, in light of the fact that given his district in southern Louisiana, he's been a major recipient from fossil fuel industries, and that's why the Sunrise Movement objected to his elevation. Uh, certainly, it's going to be very interesting to see who Mr. Biden appoints as Secretary of the Treasury. He said he's already made a decision. He'll announce it next week or shortly after Thanksgiving. Right, and uh, Laura Carlson, final thought. I think one of the things that's most important is what Marisa Franco of the one of the organizations that was key in flipping Arizona said and other places throughout the country is that we didn't we weren't picking our savior we were picking our target so the movements are very clear that they needed to get rid of Trump and that they didn't expect Joe Biden to be a savior and that they'll keep on mobilizing which is definitely what they did here in Latin America people are drawing up all kinds of lists to, you know, platforms about what should be done. And there's some hope that those can get in, that they can be considered within the new administration. And then there's also, there's a commitment, a very strong commitment to just keep pushing. Right. And of course, the Poor People's Campaign has a major national mobilization this coming Monday of car caravans going to 36 uh, state uh, capitals. Um, I encourage you to go to the Poor People's Campaign website to get more information on that. And the voices you heard in that earlier clip, of course, were Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida uh, Talib. Thank you. Another fascinating roundtable. We are out of time. I'd like to thank the Sojourner Truth team, our audio engineer, Kiana Williams, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. And y'all, please stay safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. KBOO, Portland, Oregon, 90.7 FM on your Portland dial, KBOO.FM on your everywhere on earth internet dial. Stay safe, stay sane, stay tuned.